I think what's happening now is we've lost a lot of our connection to our ancient cultures and, and community and all those things that we had before. But I actually think we have massive amounts of trauma that we are now responsible for healing. Welcome to Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara. I'm your host, Dr. Tara, and I've been actively reinventing myself since I discovered the power of neuroplasticity. I have transformed myself personally, professionally, emotionally, and spiritually. And I'm here to show you that no matter your age or mindset, you can do it too. And because we're all about reinvention, season two is going to be quite different to season one. The episodes will be released weekly, and we've listened to your feedback and decided to go ad-free. There's a strong theme of ancient wisdom, which made me realize that the things we need to flourish in life, love, health, and work have been hiding in plain sight for millennia. I hope this season is as impactful for you as it is for me. In this episode, we will be exploring the ancient wisdom of both Hindu and first American philosophies, epigenetics and generational trauma, and finding your true path in life. My guest today is a master coach, energy therapist, Vedic astrologer, and speaker who combines Western psychology and Eastern wisdom to help her clients heal and transform. She was born to parents who both suffered from addiction and began living on her own at only 17 years old. Yet despite the odds, she put herself through university and has built a life of purpose, connection, and success. Please welcome Tori Janae. Hi, Tori. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tara. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be here. Well, I'm so lucky to have you here because we have a mutual friend, Alice Law. Um, and I know you've worked with Alice and Mo Gaudat on Unstressable. Um, and they were on season one of the podcast. So it's a great sort of evolution to now have you on season two. Um, yes. And also that Alice has spoken to me about your work for years. So I feel like I know you, but not enough about your work. Like obviously she shares some of her insights, but I'm super interested to learn more about the variety of, of things that you offer. But before we get into those, it would be so interesting, I think, for the audience to hear a bit about your background and your qualifications and how you came to the place that you're at now. Yeah, no, I'll start at the very beginning because that's what makes it most interesting, right? So I yeah. grew up in a unique, a really unique situation. There was a lot of trauma. Both my parents um, suffered with addiction. So I made it through all of that. I left home at 17. I kind of knew the way out of the struggle of poverty and what I had grown up in was university. So I went off to university to study psychology. And in looking at my, you know, most of us who are psychologists, therapists, whatever, <laughs> whatever leads us to psychology, it's usually we're trying to figure out what happened to us <laughs> or yeah, the people totally. around us. <laughs> So we were healers and helpers for a long time before we ended up there. And through that, you know, understanding the Western lessons of getting my, you know, I've got an associate's, a bachelor's and a master's all in Western psychology, though my, my master's was a little bit more of the spiritual psychology, which I loved. It was more mm. transpersonal and positive. And then I got a secondary specialization in coaching and I, and alongside that journey of the Western psychology, I really got interested in Eastern philosophy as well. When I was 19, mm. I lived in Japan for a very short time. I learned oh. about Buddhism. Yeah, I was there for about a year. And then when I was about 21, just from an intuitive hit, I was like, I have to go do yoga. 
And I have no clue what it was about. It was just, I have to find a yoga class. And I got very lucky. And I found a direct descendant of Iyengar from from India. Yeah, Yeah. so he was amazing. And I had amazing teachers all the way along. But ultimately, at this point, I've got a few degrees in Western psychology. And I have studied yoga for 22 years. I'm a 500-hour yoga teacher. I have also studied Ayurveda for the last probably five to 10 years. And now I'm on a journey of studying astrology from the Vedic perspective, which is what they call sidereal or star-based. So it's actually what's really cool is that what I've learned along the way is that everything that modern science has proven about meditation and health and wellness and even the stars, the yogis had actually accurately <laughs> and you know aligned like they had a word for Adam 5,000 years ago they accurately aligned all the stars to where the system that we use aligns perfectly with what NASA has done wow yeah a lot of people don't know that if, if you look at western nothing wrong with western astrology it has great tools but the Vedic perspective is exactly aligned to to NASA and how they've charted the stars. So the fact that they were able to chart the stars that accurately three to 5,000 years ago is just fascinating and such a thing for me to, you know, connect to is like, as I look at how do we heal and make ourselves better, which was my own journey, it was like having that Western psychology understanding it and blending it with the wisdom of the East and, and also my Native American culture and a lot of different mm-hmm. things to reconnect to myself, reconnect to the earth and bring in healing on a whole new level. So yeah, lots and lots of certifications and degrees. I'm also trained in energy psychology. So it's a type of energy work that I do as well. So I really bring in that holistic perspective to help people heal mind, body and soul, because if we leave any of those out, healing doesn't totally take place. No. That is incredible. There were quite a few thoughts going through my head. The first one being that you know more, you've certainly studied more about my own cultural heritage than I have. So I'm going to learn from you. <laughs> um, but I'm also really interested in your um, Native American culture. I'd love to know more about that too. So if we could you know, get to that at some point. And I also wanted to say, you know, Tara means star. So I, I actually... I'm really interested in Vedic astrology. And I was going to ask you, what's the difference between astrology and Vedic astrology? But I feel like the first part that you've said is that astrology is based on the planets and Vedic astrology is based on the stars. Is that correct? It's kind of think of it as how we look at the sky. So in Western astrology, we turn each season on the equinox, we turn the planet 24 degrees and in Vedic astrology, we keep it fixed by the stars. So that's why it's called sidereal. So it's it's like sidereal or actual placement. So right now, the moon and Saturn are in Aquarius. But if you ask a Western astrologer, they're going to say it's in Pisces because they have, it's called the Navamsha. Mm. They've turned the planet about 24 degrees. Uh. And they also, in Vedic, we don't use the outer planet. So we don't use Pluto or Neptune, but we use the moon primarily. It's a moon-based system where Western is a solar-based system. So if I asked you your sign in Western, you know, I'm, I'm a Cancer, right? Which is funny. In, mm-hmm. in Eastern, I'm also a Cancer because my moon is in Cancer. <laughs> so it doesn't really change oh. for me. But the placements are different too. So if you have all of your, a lot of times, about 50% of the time, all of your signs from Western will change when you get a Vedic 
perspective. And we also yeah. look at it very differently. Because because Alice talks about you and Vedic astrology all the time, I actually looked it up. And so in Western astrology, I'm Leo Sun, Scorpio Rising and Libra Moon. And in Vedic astrology, I came off as a Cancerian and I was kind of, it was very hard for me to accept that because I've always thought, you know, that I'm the, the, those three things. Um, but, I'm, you know, I must have a session with you sometime and see, you know, what comes out of that, I guess, because I haven't looked into it more than that. Yeah, and we look more, so I love to explain this to people. There's a big thing called the, the big three, right? Your, mm. your rising sign, your sun sign, your moon sign. We look at it this way. Your rising changes every two hours. That means that the, literally the moment you entered this plane, the earth, that is the star that you were born under. So you're anchored to a star. So they believe that like that is the star your soul came through. So that's your ascendant or your rising. Wow. And that changes every two hours. So that gives us very specific information. Then we look at your moon because your moon changes every two days. So that's the second most important. Then okay. we look at the sun because that changes every 30. So mm. we get a full picture of you by looking at all. And I'm sure you've got some Leo energy in there. It wouldn't, you know, I'm sure that they both make sense because Scorpio is the, is the healer. So of course, having a Scorpio oh. ascendant. That most Scorpios should be counselors. That would be like the ideal job for them. <laughs> so, wow. so there is no accident in what happened. Then creating a business from healing would be that, that moon, I'm sorry, your sun in Leo, which would be, make you very powerful. But I'm sure there's a lot of power in your Vedic chart. And then we go into nakshatras too, which is very cool because we have a solar system that does the classic, you know, Leo, Cancer, et cetera. But then Vedic astrology also has a, little system of signs for the moon itself. And they're called nakshatras and they're 27 lunar mansions. So you get even more information. So you're not, so I'm not just a cancer moon. I'm an Ashlisha cancer moon. Oh, I really want to know <laughs> so what I it's, am. <laughs> it's a lot of information. It can take, yeah. you know, 20 years to be completely proficient in this. Wow. And, and, and this is the thing that you've started most recently compared to the other things that you're qualified in. Yeah, I've only been into, I, I've had my own readings over the last like five years, but I've only started studying to become an astrologer in the last two because my Vedic astrologer told me it was in my chart to become an astrologer. And at the time I was in my late thirties and I was just like, you know, I'm starting my practice, like I'm in my, I'm full time in my practice. I have no time for that. I literally thought there's no way that's going to happen. And sure enough, just as he predicted, it came to fruition. I just knew I had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. So if people are interested in Vedic astrology, do they have to see an astrologer or are there some things they can do by themselves? Yeah, it's always best to see an astrologer, but you can definitely pull your chart from a Vedic perspective or sidereal just to look at the difference. And I know it can kind of, like you said, we identify with our Western and I'm very lucky that all my planets are kind of in similar houses. So it didn't, I didn't have this like identity crisis. Of, you know, I was Leo and now I'm a Cancer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, it's fascinating to look at. I also find the opposite. Some people who, let's say they're at Pisces, now they find out they're, they're another, you know, maybe they go, they fall into Aries or something else. They, they feel more aligned to that. They're like, oh, that mm -hmm. makes more sense. Cause I'm actually not as sensitive as that particular sign sounds like in Western. So mm -hmm. I find that both can hold value and truth and that anything is just about information. But what I really love about 
Vedic astrology and what a lot of people don't know about yoga is that yoga has nothing to do with the poses. You know, the poses are like, I would yeah. say if, if the Vedas were like a Bible, one page would be about the, the, the physical part. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. To give you, it's really about the mind and self-realization. And the yoga part is really the meditation and and yoga is a moving meditation. So mm-hmm. yoga is to bring yourself to the tr- to truth, to self-realization. Ayurveda is the second leg, which is to heal the body. And then third is Vedic astrology, and that's actually for the soul and the karma. So it's a, it's a complete oh. system, and they all actually work together. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, so maybe, <laughs> <Yeah>. you could, <laughs> maybe you could then just give us a little top line description and then later we'll come to what people can you know do with this of I know you just did but a bit more about yoga Ayurveda and Vedic astrology yeah so the practice of physical yoga is to help us get calm in our body to get grounded and what I love is from a western psychology perspective we know it helps the nervous system in one of the best books you know the body keeps the score about trauma Mm. and the body and, you know, just chronic stress, too, because that's another thing that really affects all all Western people, for sure, mm-hmm. is we use the yoga, the physical yoga to calm ourselves enough so we can meditate. And so that's ultimately, it's leading us back to a calm place. That's why if you've ever taken a yoga class, you know, your listeners, like, you're going to do Shavasana, which is the, the, you know, corpse pose at the very end, because mm-hmm. now you have expended all of your energy and you can lay still. Oh, yeah makes total sense and I'm, I meant to say as well that when I first learned yoga I I didn't have a direct descendant of Iyengar but I did start with the Iyengar method and I mm. I really liked it because it's very disciplined so it kind of it it teaches you discipline from the start and then later you know I guess it's okay to drop into classes or discover you know yin yoga or something else um but I, re- I really love the discipline of it um so I'm with you on that one and slightly envious that you got a direct descendant of the man himself. Yeah, um, it was really neat. They had yeah. like videos of him training with him, with, with Iyengar himself when he was like eight years old. Wow. Yeah, but um, the discipline is so true. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is different. And some, it wouldn't be for some people, but it definitely no. like suits my personality. Um, so yeah, tell us a bit more about Ayurveda then. How, you know, what's the next step? Yeah. So once, and, and they don't have to go in any particular order. You can enter at any point. Okay. <laughs> I okay. would say like, go with what calls to you. Cause some people would mm. be really interested in astrology or Ayurveda or, you know, everybody's going to have a different entry point. Mm. And with Ayurveda, what's fascinating about it is it really helps us understand our body, its unique dosha or element and mm. how to care for that. And mm. so just to make it very simple, there's, there's three doshas and we're all a mix of them. So we have the water, earth, which is kapha, then we have the air and the ether, which is vata, and then we have pitta, which is water and fire. And if we know that about ourselves, we know how to balance our own body. And the the Mm -hmm. basis of Ayurveda is so brilliant because it's really using the opposite to balance ourselves. So I always explain to people, during the summer when it's very hot, you have a cool salad and, you know, and you want those lighter foods, you want to eat the summer fruits, that is Ayurveda. <laughs> that is, you know, during the winter. Yeah. yeah, during the winter, you want to eat, you know, warm, nourishing foods, which we naturally are drawn to our, t- our herbal teas and our 
good soups and, you know, kachari mm. and these things that are very healing mm. to us. But it's knowing that maybe your dosha, like me, particularly I'm, I'm vata pitta. So I'm this air and this fire. I always have to be managing that. And once I understood it, it gave me so much more grace. Because I knew like, okay, I'm just more prone to these things. I'm a little more prone to anxiety or, or being worried or, you know, being a little bit fiery <laughs> like yeah, with this, yeah. this secondary. And then it, it, it reduces that judgment in yourself. And you can say, oh, that, that's the element that I need to balance in myself. Like I'm going too fast. I'm doing too much. I, I need to stop eating so much salads and, and green, you know, raw foods because it's actually very bad for bata. So I had to unlearn a lot of habits that, we get addicted to our imbalances. So, you know, as a Vata person, what did I love? I loved raw food and coffee, which were two, like the first, the, the worst things I could do. So just learning how to balance my body through food and practices that are very simple, it was life-changing. It was, it was more helpful than anything I'd ever done in the West. Wow. So I'm Vata Pitta too. So um, oh, I'm, obvi- <laughs> yeah, I'm obviously going to pick your brains now for some more specifics on that. And the first part of my question, which you've partially answered is, in Ayurveda, is the answer always through food? Or w- what are these other practices that you just mentioned? Yeah, so it always, you know, food is always a basis. But another great thing that's really important is our schedule. So to really recalibrate ourselves to the earth. And when we have a schedule, Everybody thrives on it. And they have different times in Ayurveda that are, that are, you know, there's great reasons behind everything, but I always like to give people some simple things. So using your, your sleep and wake times to be within an hour of the same, anchoring your meals around the same time, it actually reduces anxiety. And I do this with a lot of my clients. Like we, we put in some of those very simple Ayurvedic practices, but even, how, how you schedule things. Like, are you some, you know, if you're more vata, you need a little bit of space between things to like calm down because our, our tendency is to want to rush to everything. And we kind of always feel like we're late, mm. <laughs> so, yeah. especially with that pitta. Cause you know, the air, the fire kicks up the air. <laughs> so, yeah. Totally. So it's like, if you're kapha though, then you need to do the opposite. You actually need more invigorating exercise. It goes, it really goes through everything. How you, you know, sleeping, eating, exercising, um, okay. daily routines, lots of ways that we can look at the herbal side of it as well as how to support your dosha, how to mm. balance the dosha, oils for the body, which are great. Mm. You know, there's something called abhyanga, which technically means self-love, but it's like that calms the nervous system. Again, so good for yeah. stress. And, you know, not everyone can afford to go get a massage, but you can do it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and if you use yeah. the appropriate oils, you're going to bring down those feelings of stress and worry and anxiety and, um, and and that's that's pitta and sorry that's vata pitta will get angry so if you're like i don't i don't get anxious well if you're pitta you're going to get irritable and annoyed and if you're very kapha you're going to get down and and sometimes yeah. even feel like you're depressed or blue so mm-hmm. even understanding um ayurveda has a whole psychology section too um ah. like a vata type depression versus a pitta yeah. depression you know and it's fascinating because it's helped me so much to recognize like a vata person will get depressed when they feel lonely. Oh. Yeah. So it's like if, if vata is experiencing some low grade depression, it's like, okay, well, we need, we need you to be with more people. Mm. If pitta is, it's more about anger and frustration and, and not expressing themselves and, and holding that in. And then kapha, they might not be doing enough or feeling connected to their purpose. That's so interesting. Two things stood out for me there. One is that it's a relatively recent neuroscience research finding 
that going to sleep and waking within one hour of the time regularly makes a massive difference. It's not, you know, we used to say get eight hours of good quality sleep and now it's an additional thing, which is, we don't actually really know why, but the benefit of having the regular sleep and wake times within a one hour window. And I remember when I was um, studying neuroscience, because when I was at medical school, I got to take a year to study special topics. And that's when I started choosing neuroscience for everything. And at some point then I saw this timeline of neuroscience and it actually starts with Ayurveda. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 So that makes sense. Um, and then the thing that you were saying about Abhyanga is um, that, you know, if you're lonely, then, you know, you're not getting hugs, you're not, be- you're like not necessarily close to someone or with people then things like bathing and self-massage become like so much more important for that oxytocin release. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. But it is incredible still every time I hear these parallels. It's like what you said, people knew this like thousands of years ago and we've forgotten it, but we're coming back to it, which is great. Um, but it's not really new. That's, I guess, the thing to say is it's a rediscovery. It is. It's really just our ability to confirm that these things work, I think, and, and a rediscovery of that reconnection to all of these great things. And with the sleep thing, it's all about the circadian rhythm and the timing. Mm. So it's like, mm. you know, we, our bodies need to find their own rhythm when they can. And, and we have a lot of artificial rhythms, right? Whether it's mm. to work or to children or to, mm. <laughs> to, you know, maybe even a difficult schedule, like you might work a, a late shift, like, our bodies want to be asleep by 10. And I think mm-hmm. the neuroscience, I, I have the same thing whenever I study anything neuroscience, I'm always like, oh, that totally aligns with everything I've ever learned. You know what I mean? I like, know. it's fascinating. And I learned neuroscience first, so it's kind of the opposite as well, you know, because like, particularly my, 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 you know, Western psychology degree, my first one was very based in all of that. So it was yeah. like, as I learned this more and more, I was like, wow, they already knew this and we yeah. just have to to reconnect to it. So you've already spoken a bit about Vedic astrology. So I'd love it if you could talk to, for the listeners, about the Vedas because they're the most ancient scripts in the world. Is that correct? Yeah, there's some, there's disagreement about how old they are, but there's good reason. <laughs> and the reason is, is because in India, all of the wisdom was passed down from student to teacher orally. And so it was talked about. It wasn't written for a long Mm. time. Mm. From what I've heard and what I know, to me, it makes sense to be about three to 5,000 years old. Okay. And so there's four of them. I think the one that we use the most is the rig, if I'm correct. I'm not, I'm not a a Vedic scholar. Um, the only one I know who's actually like certified in India is Dr. David Frawley. And I have a ton of his books, (laughs) but he's actually won like a Nobel Peace Prize for translating, you know, India's version of that for translating the Vedas into English because his Sanskrit is so good. And so in, I've, I've sat in a couple of his lectures and, he really explains it well is, is they can, if they look at the lineage of guru to student, mm-hmm. that's where they can kind of prove that there's a 5,000 year unbroken lineage mm-hmm. of this knowledge. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating is a lot of it was sung in like, um, mantra. And wow. so it, it has all this secret meaning and that's why it was also had to be translated by a teacher. So they kind of kept, kept the knowledge hidden in these verses. And even if Mm -hmm. you look at like the, there's a great book about like Patanjali, one of the, I guess, sages 
who wrote, they have, it's an English translation that you can get. You know, the first thing it says is now we begin the practice of yoga now. But what does that mean? If you have a, a guru who can explain that to you, it's actually all about the power of now and the presence of being in this moment. But if you didn't understand that verse, just one line, you wouldn't know that it's actually, it's actually all, it has so much deep wisdom in it. And I loved one of my gurus said, you know, in the West, we want to read an entire book about being present, you know, the power of now, all these things. Yeah. And then in the East, you know, your guru will just say, practice, just be present. Like you don't, if you read about it, your mind will connect, will overanalyze it and you just need to practice it. So that's really how all of the wisdom of those come out is it can be one simple line, but it will have so much wisdom and and all these different practices for us to dive into or connect to ourselves, connect to the the universe. Like it's it's fascinating. And these books, I I think, are the most ancient things I have come across. Mm. And I've studied a lot of things from, you know, every other than like the Druids and paganism, you know, that's probably mm-hmm. just as old. But other than that, I, it's the oldest surviving intact thing that I can find that is so whole and and just full wow. of wisdom. And for me, I want to go back to that, right? Because yeah. like you said, there isn't much new under the sun. I'm not really interested in, at this point, all the... Um, I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of great teachers out there, but there's a lot of teachers who are just kind of regurgitating the same thing. So for me, I'm really fascinated by going back to the source, if that makes sense. And I feel like these books are part of the source. And a lot of things I want to also make clear to people because they can get scared. And I've heard this before. Um, when I was actually physically teaching some yoga classes, like about sun salutations, they'd be like, Oh, I'm a Christian. You know, I can't, I can't salute the sun. And they would be afraid that, that, that there was some, disconnect there but there's not a lot of people don't understand that yoga and the vedas are actually a science yeah and like the yoga is called the science of self-realization there's no governing deity there's no god you know it's not it's like kind of the universe is in there but that's really our connection it's very scientific which is something a lot of people don't understand and and when we do sun salutations we're just saying thank you to the sun for giving us life that's all because if Mm. the sun didn't rise none of us would be here (laughs) yeah and it's nature it's not it's not a god or a religion. Um, yes, I just always like to make that clear because sometimes they think, oh, I don't want to, you know, I'm Christian or I'm I'm Jewish or, you know, and I'm, I don't want to like conflict with my faith. Like, I promise yeah. you, there's nothing that will, that will deter you from, from implementing this wisdom into your life. It's actually a great adjunct. And I think things like the eight limbs of yoga of how to live actually make you a better Christian. Oh, that's lovely. I'm, I'm also mindful of that, but in a slightly different way in that, I teach at MIT where I don't think people expect to have a guided meditation at the end of their class. Um, So I do speak about the science of mindfulness and how it actually changes your brain. But then when we come to the last 20 minutes and I'm going to do the guided meditation, I always say this isn't a religious practice. It's, you know, spiritual, but as you've just heard, it's very much based in science. However, it's not for everyone. So if anybody wants to leave the room now, will be done in 20 minutes and you won't miss anything other than the meditation. No one has ever left the room, which I just, you know, I think is so interesting, like in in a lovely, hopeful, positive way, because it must seem so unusual that that's what you're going to do in an MIT business school class. Um, And I can completely understand if, you know, if you were Muslim or Christian or anything else that you might think that it is in contrast to your like faith. Um, but I think 
we're very lucky now that the science can back it up so much that we can, you know, say that to people. So one of the things I'm trying to achieve in this season of the podcast is find nuggets of indigenous wisdom that can be applied to modern mental health struggles. And I've heard one already, which is what you mentioned about being present. So just, you know, off the top of your mind, are there any, any other ones that jump to your mind that could be useful to people from the Vedas? Yeah, I mean, so much is from their, you know, meditation. Obviously, we know the science is huge and a lot of people mm. resist it. And I did too. I will be the first one to say, you know, my guru literally had to say to me, Tori, do you want to be miserable or do you want to meditate? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Let me think about it. Because <laughs> I was such a busybody and such a doer and so type A. And it literally transformed my life um, and my mind for sure. Like I have mm. so much more control and I don't get triggered. And, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. not, not never, but very rarely yeah. now. Yeah. And so from that to just the lifestyle practices to, to, you know, create a simple routine for yourself, like test it. I always tell people, be your own experimenter. I promise if you do mm. it for 21 days, you're going to feel better. Like, don't take my word for it. Practice yeah. it. Yoga yeah. itself, deep breathing. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the herbs are also huge. Mm -hmm. Things like tulsi is something mm -hmm. very simple, but it it grounds vata. It so that that anxious feeling. It, it helps us connect to our heart space. It reduces kapha from the lungs. So if you're having a hard time taking in deep breaths, um, there's brahmi, b r a h m i. Don't mess mm -hmm. it up with go to cola. It's actually a different plant. Um, and the reason why it's slightly different is Brahmi is a, what we call a Rasayana, which is a, a rejuvenative and a nervine. So it helps the nerves again. And so that one's also great for anxiety. I've had miraculous results with that for people with anxiety. Not, not major panic disorder, please don't get me wrong. <laughs> like yeah. A lot of, a lot of healing work can help those things, of course. But if you're just having like general, like low feelings of anxiousness that don't mm -hmm. seem to go away and, and you're doing all the things and it's not helping, there's so many herbs. Also for anxiety, oiling the bottoms of your feet at night, it brings the energy down out of the head. So buy, you know, go to a, your local Whole Foods or natural health food store, find a, a calming oil, maybe with lavender, pull all of that out of your, your head. You know, like it just, it pulls the energy down. And I know that sounds fascinating, but again, I've had great results with it. Oh gosh, I could probably go on and on and on. Do, should we go into the Native American side of it? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm lucky to have a guest that can go into more than one indigenous culture. So, <laughs> I know. Well, luckily, your culture, so we can exchange. <laughs> I know. Okay. So thank you for enlightening me in my own cultural heritage. <laughs> and, uh, now I would, would love to hear more about yours. So tell us about your background um, and then, you know, any nuggets that you have like, like you did um, from your culture would be uh, just amazing for me and, and our listeners. Yeah, no, I love, I love to reconnect with it because it's kind of a dying culture in its own ways, right? So it wasn't really until I did my ancestor. I always knew that my father was from Mexico and that he, you know, was connected to, you know, Native American culture. I, I, you know, you can see it in my features and, you know, a lot of things like I, I always knew it was there. And so I kind of studied different cultures in, in South, like South, Southern parts of the United States, like the Hopi Indians, Navajo mm -hmm. tribes, just the different ones that I could connect with here. And then when I did my own DNA in the last like six, six or seven years, I actually was able to find my specific tribe, which was very cool. 
Wow. And so what's fascinating is I'm actually living in, in the LA area and that is my tribe historically lived from Southern California to Northern Mexico. So I'm literally Amazing. right back in my ancestral home, which was fascinating primarily because I was actually born in Seattle, Washington, and then I migrated. I naturally migrated south. So to me, that's just a fascinating thing of our, our connection to our roots, even when we don't always know them. I moved here before that. So technically, that's I'm... Me goosebumps. Ha- that's <laughs> literally giving me goosebumps. Yeah. And, and if you have your ancestry map, you know, it will have like those kind of like your your culture or your your... I can't remember what they call it, but it's basically like where your family came from. I literally mm-hmm. live within the green map of where my tribe initially lived. So from my dad's side, I am Sonoran Indian from the Sonoran mm-hmm. Desert. And then from my mom's side, I'm like Spain, Spanish and um, some French. So I definitely yeah. have a mixture of the two. Yeah. But that, you know, being connected to the Vedas and, and being called to that so early, I do really think that the Vedas are just the song of my soul. And it, I learn it so easily and it makes so much sense. And then when I understood my Native American culture, I was like, now I know why. It's because it's the same energy. It's connected to the earth. It's connected uh-huh. to ourselves. And so the more I've learned about my Native American culture, that I just connect so much of it. But what's fascinating, what I think everyone can connect to and that we all need to return ourselves to is time in nature. You know, Native Mm. Americans lived in nature, with nature, in harmony with nature. And I think we've really lost that. Yeah. They used every part of an animal. Or you know what I mean? Like every everything was just so beautifully done. And they lived within communities and tribes and animals gave us messages from the divine. Mm. And there was, you know, a connection to the to Father Sky and Mother Earth. And there was so many similarities to me to the Vedas that I was just like, oh, this is it. And what's cool about my Mexican tradition, too, is I read in, you know, Dr. David Frawley in one of his books about astrology. He said that if you're born into an ancient civilization from like culturally, there's Mm -hmm. actually some cool kind of past life connection. Like, so if you're born in India, like your your heritage is Indian, then you know that like you're born to an ancient culture. It's also the same yeah. for Mexico because it's a very ancient culture, right? We mm-hmm. have the Aztecs. We have a lot of proof that they were there for a very long time. Mm. So it's like the coolest things about the Native American culture, though, is learning how to connect to ourselves, to nature, using animals as messengers. I know that's kind of a unique thing, but... Wow. Yeah. In Native American culture, we actually believe an animal will even give its life to give a message to you from the divine. One of my favorite sayings is that animals never lose their connection to the divine. And so they show up as guides for us. And so that's something I always look for. If I'm going to make that's a big incredible. decision, I remember yeah. the day I was going to leave my corporate job to pursue, because I used to be in human resources. I know that sounds crazy, but this was a little, you know, many crazy. Moons, yeah. <laughs> right. Many, many moons ago when I got my first psychology degrees, because I took a, a break between graduate school and undergraduate school. And yeah. um, so I went into HR because it, it paid well. And anyway, yeah. I remember I was driving to tell my boss that I was going to leave. And I really loved her and we're still great friends. And I saw a hawk and I knew it's going to be okay. Cause that's my, that's my totem. That's my guide. Oh. And literally, Lynn, I'm not joking, like over the LA freeway, he, like he shouldn't really have been there. Yeah. <laughs> there he was. And so I just always invite people to, if you see an animal and you're going through something, you know, 
Google it. Say, say spiritual or Native American meaning of this animal. And I promise you, you'll always get a, like a fascinating message. Yeah, I used to do that a lot, actually. I haven't um, sort of remembered to do that so much recently. Um, so I've definitely done the thing about if I see a specific animal, I'm interested in what it might mean, like spiritually. But mm -hmm. how do people understand what their totem animal is? So a totem animal is often something that you can meditate on and ask your spirit guides or ancestors to show you. Wow, so it's I'm really just it. being, yeah, it's being in communication with, and there's lots of, there's different theories on how to find your totem, but I really believe that that, it, from the way I was taught, it, it is something that comes to you in visions, just like in a shamanic way. Yeah. And how long would you have to meditate for, do you think, to really like feel certain that you've found your, your totem animal? I feel like as long as it takes and to really just trust okay. what comes up and maybe Definitely. sometimes spirit will also just show you the next day. You know, you might be going down the street and see a crow and be like, Oh, that cannot be it. But then look up crow. <laughs> you know, crow, yeah, yeah. Like, crow is magic. That's why he's black. You know, there's so much like power to the, the crow totem. So there can be, you know, even if it's like a lot of people will be hummingbird or you see butterflies or, you know, those all have mm. messages about joy and transformation. And mm. so it's again, like that connection to nature that, that the divine is always trying to connect with you. We just have to make an intention to connect with it. We just have to see it sometimes as well, you know, because that hawk could have gone past and somebody else wouldn't have noticed. Yes. So again, being present mm. and being in tune with what's around you because you know we all yeah. get busy and that's normal and that's western mm -hmm. life but just taking a moment particularly if you're having a rough day to look around you and be like okay what's what's something that could give me some hope because i think in today's climate that's something that we all need and i love that there's a, a navajo saying and i might mess it up but i'm going to give it a try because i think it's so beautiful mm -hmm. so they say that long long ago all the animals gathered around the lake with the great creator and they said, we have something, the great creator said, we have something to hide from the humans. So tell us where we can place it that they'll never find it. And so Hawk says, I'll fly it to the highest tree and they'll never, they'll never ever find it. And great creator says, believe it or not, one day the humans will cut down the trees. They will, they will get to the top of the tallest trees and, and we will not hide it from them there. So grizzly bear stands forward and he says, I'm going to take it to the deepest cave in the highest mountain and they'll never find it. And he says, actually, one day they will explore every cave on this earth. <laughs> and then whale comes forward and he says, let me take it to the depths of the ocean. And he said, even though they can't breathe underwater, the humans will, will find a way to get underwater. <laughs> they'll explore the deepest caverns of, of that. And so each animal comes forward and gives their best ideas. And finally, wise mole who cannot see comes forward. And she says to hide it in their heart where they will never think oh. to look. <laughs> That's actually made me cry. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. So I oh love that because it yeah. reminds wow. us we will look everywhere in the world for our healing, for our wellness, for our goodness, but it is only found within us. <laughs> so beautiful. Oh my goodness. As you can tell, I'm very emotional, <laughs> Leo Scorpio. <laughs> um, well, that's also that Cancer Sun in, West, in Vedic. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. So you're going to keep trying to persuade me, I see. <laughs> but cancer, um, that's that's their superpower, is their feeling. It'll never lie to them. Okay. I, I like that superpower. That's a good one. Um, 
Yeah, I'm also very moved by beauty, you know, whether that's in nature or dance or, you know, anything. So I think just, you know, that's such a beautiful, it, like what it evokes in you emotionally is so beautiful that um, we also say in, you know, more holistic neuroscience that when you cry, your nervous system has become fluid and that means you're open to change. Mm, so, that's beautiful. Yeah, I love that too. Yeah, um, I'm going to share that one. <laughs> yeah, you can have that one for me. <laughs> for all the hundreds of things you've just given me, you can definitely have that one. I will definitely um, be telling my clients that Dr. Tara said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's good because you know often, especially corporate clients, they don't want to cry. They you know they, it would take a lot to make them feel that that's okay. And I remember once having a client, and she asked me to. It was in her office building, but she asked to have her first session in quite a public place, like, you know, side room off a cafe or something. <laughs> and I said to her, I'm not sure about this because sometimes in the first session, people cry. So she said, oh, okay, let, you know, we can just go up to my office. That's fine. And we were in the middle of the session and she said something and she looked at me and she said, I'm going to cry now, aren't I? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but she was a she, but I've had, you know, male client, clients crying as well. Um, okay, where were we? So um, anything else from from your culture? I do have a specific question. Um, yeah, if, go ahead and give yeah. me your question. See if that unlocks something new we need to share. Yeah. So I spoke to this guy in my local crystal shop who had studied um, the first Americans in the sort of Colorado area. So it, it's probably a different tribe. And I was asking him about coincidence or synchronicity and he said something which I'd love to know more about which is that in the western world we view time as a straight line so mm. if something happens twice or something connected happens we say it's a coincidence and actually if you think about the root of the word coincidence it's the same thing happening twice or two things happening at the same time he said in the tri in the tribe that he studied their view of time was a spiral. Yeah. And same. do you mind. know about that? Yeah. Okay. It's, 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 it's time is circular. And so we're just, we're actually going across this path. So we may hit the same things many times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that basically explains when you say something like, oh, I was just speaking the other day about X and then you've just mentioned it now. It's because you're actually crossing that spiral. Is that, have I understood it correctly? Yeah, no, that's exactly what it is. I like to think of it as like, it's a spiral, they call it the spiral path and it's the spiral mm -hmm. path inward and you're going to go across it. And I think a lot of times when we go across, like we're going across it, you hit the same point many, many times. If you were going, mm -hmm. if I had a straight line across the spiral, but I see that like from my own personal view of also being many messages trying to lead me back to something. It's trying to get a message to mm -hmm. me across that, across time and space. Wow. This, I mean, I, this is just so mind-boggling. I feel like we could speak for hours. Um, okay, so I think that was just a kind of, you know, question that I wanted to un understand more. But there's just maybe kind of going back a little, maybe, maybe towards my culture, or I'm not sure, like, necessarily which culture this comes from. But could you tell us what the Akashic records are? Yes. So the Akashic record is basically the record of your soul. And this goes, starts to go into past lives, which Vedic astrology does believe in because they believe okay. that we actually 
bring karma with us from a past life. In yoga, also, we have the word samskara, which literally means like a scar on the soul, which is a, it's almost like they say it's like a record. The way they describe it is like it's a groove that we'll play over and over and over again. And so one of my teachers says, you don't really need to do a lot of past life work because a lot of times you're going to be experiencing the same problem in this life because you brought it all with you. Mm. <laughs> but, but the Akashic records are fascinating because if, particularly if you get a reading or you do a meditation to connect, you know, there's lots of them online. It's really understanding our past lives, our past traumas, the things that we experienced and the things that have shaped who we are now. And I really... Believe me, when I was early in undergraduate school, you know, I was not open to this. I know this is going to sound crazy, but I was almost, you know, I was agnostic at best. I very much wow. believed in the universe and I was very interested in astrology because that still seemed like a science to me. Mm -hmm. I but agree. I, yeah, I wasn't super open to the, or, you know, like I wasn't someone who used a lot of spiritual words. <laughs> and that doesn't seem crazy to me, actually, because maybe because I've had a similar journey because, you know, we both started off as cognitive scientists. And it's quite hard to put those things together, even with the cultural heritages that we, that we both have. It's It's hard, I think, as a young person to find a way to connect those two things and I, I think it's easier to try to separate them in your mind so I think that comes with age and wisdom and personal experience in life and everything so I, I, I get that I think that would resonate with people yeah so I just always like to share that so that they know that I wasn't you know I, I didn't start out very woo woo it had to yeah, make yeah. a lot of sense to me <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, to, I love that. and now I see. So when I think of the Akashic record and the record of our soul, I also see that as like generational trauma and the things that like we'd been through in a past life, we're going to bring that in. So maybe if someone in it, you know, maybe if you're struggling with like lack and fear of not being able to pay your bills or, or food scarcity or anything like that, you know, there could have been a past life where you experienced that, or that could be in your generational line. Like a lot of us in America, their uh, grandparents went through great depression. Mm. So when we understand what happened from the Akashic record and our own family history, we can do healing on an even deeper level on this at the soul level. Because, you know, we've talked a lot about the mind from the from the psychological perspective and the yogic, and then we're going into the body and the Native American side. Yeah. But now it's like looking at that that soul piece and healing yeah. at a deep level. Mm -hmm. The Akashic record work that I have done was fascinating to me because in many lifetimes I've been a healer and I was persecuted for that many lives. So this life, my reader told me that I had been hiding all of that. And it was very true. I went out of university and I really wanted to be a therapist and I loved yoga and all these things. And I always joked that it was hidden in the, in the closet. You know, it was like, I was like, I'm going to go into HR and <laughs> I'm yeah. going to be a professional businesswoman. <laughs> and it was painful and I knew it wasn't my purpose. And that's ultimately what got me out of it. By luckily, by the time I was in my early, like 32, mm. I think I left all of that. So I've been on the, you know, full time in this work for quite a, quite a long time now, but it helps me understand that part of myself of why I wasn't owning my gifts. And I see that yeah. a lot with people. They don't always understand why they might be interested in something like holistic healing. And of course we get messages from culture and parents and the, all of mm. that counts too, of mm. course. But 
leading us into that totally different perspective of, you know, the soul comes in with its wounds, its fears, and its own understanding of the world. And some of us are new, you know, there's all kinds of different theories about old souls and new souls. Mm. And But I feel like anybody who's watched a child grow or had multiple children in their lives, like, you know, the soul exists because they are so different. Yeah. 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 And they just come in that way. Like about yeah. nine months, you start to see their personality and it just blossoms. And, 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 you know, those of you who maybe even had children come through your physical body, you're kind of like, I had all three of you and how are you all so different? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had um, the professor that I teach with at MIT, she's got four kids and she says they turn up as their own little person. Like you don't actually influence them as much as you think you do. And on that point, what I wanted to say was you mentioned, you know, Many people in America, their grandparents like may have been, well, would, would have been through the depression. What I'd like to come back to is to take it much further back than that and say many people in America, their ancestors would have been through slavery. They would have been through the, you know, movement of the first Americans from their lands um, and, and, you know, various other cultures, um, Holocaust, Dutch famine, you know, all, all of those sorts of things. And, and even further back than that, I think... I think what you're saying about the Akashic Records is that it's like as far back as you can go, you may have like um, generational trauma. I am absolutely bursting with curiosity to hear about generational trauma, epigenetics, um, and particularly the soul aspect of it. So I'm just going to let you speak because I just want to listen. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Dr. Tara is so good with all the science and understanding the neuroscience and where we actually really started to look at epigenetic trauma and or epigenetics and trauma through genetic experience was with the survivors of the Holocaust. So what was happening, just to give a very basic overview, would be they were finding the same genetic markers of stress in the children of Holocaust survivors, and they couldn't really understand why. And ultimately, the hypothesis is kind of like what we fear can also be translated in our genes. And I love to make it really simple by saying, think of the things we're all naturally afraid of. Mm -hmm. Snakes, heights, spiders, things that traditionally didn't work out so good for us humans, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so basically, to protect our young and to ensure the survival of our species, fear and worry is getting encoded into mm. our genes. And there was a study done with bunnies, and I haven't been able to find the exact study, but the gist of it was they took bunnies because they reproduce quickly. And the first generation of bunnies, they lightly shocked their feet and let them smell peppermint oil. Mm. That generation of bunnies became terrified of peppermint oil. Mm. They never, ever did that again, but they bred them seven to eight times. And every subsequent generation was terrified of the smell of peppermint oil without ever wow. having experienced the shock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so seven or eight generations. I mean, we haven't, I don't think we've got that far in research with humans, but that I'm sure it's going that way. That it, And actually, just to uh, connect that back to um, first American culture, I, when I did my, um, was it my first TED, my TED, one of my TEDx talks, um, one of the things that I said was that um, Native American, like leadership groups will sit together and imagine the consequence of their decisions on seven generations into the future. And we don't even think about one generation into the future with the decisions that we make today. 
Yes, that's actually, that's one of our, our biggest tenants. As even when I do healing work with people, one of the closing say, sayings that we do if we're doing trauma work is I heal this for myself, for seven generations before me and for seven generations after me to, to really clear the ancestral yeah. line. Yeah. So yeah, I'm glad okay. you brought that up because it's so true. That's one of our core beliefs, really. Um, so I always think about that, though. It's like if we look at what's happened, you know, in, in all of our cultures, in American culture with slavery and Native American cultures, you know, being removed from their land and mm. so much genocide in all of the world, mm. how has that affected us? And in other podcasts, I've been asked about trauma a lot, you know, because I have, I have a lot of experience with that personally and just through mm-hmm. healing work. But what's fascinating to me is when I look at this kind of thing, when I'm looking at that trauma, um, a lot of people wonder if trauma is a new word or if that's a new experience. And I've, I've actually meditated on that a lot. And I think mm-hmm. it's actually, we're the safest we've ever been in human history. That's true from FBI statistics. Mm-hmm. But I think what's happening now is we've lost a lot of our connection to our ancient cultures and, and community and all those things that we had before. But I actually think we have massive amounts of trauma that we are now responsible for healing. And so I think that's why we were the most stressed, disconnected culture ever. I actually think, because, you know, if we, yeah. even just like a couple generations, our grandparents have been through multiple wars, World War One, World mm-hmm. War Two, or, mm-hmm. you know, about clients who are from Vietnam who, you know, when they were little children, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they went through the Vietnam War. So it's like, mm-hmm. that's still encoded in us and in our genes. And it's kind of like, mm-hmm. how does it affect us? And it can affect us all differently. But inviting us to look at, you know, what happened in my ancestral line and how I, how might that be showing up for me now? How, you know, what are yeah. the fears that I have? What are the, you know, like for me, I know something that I think comes from my Native American line is um, the feeling of home is the big one, like a fear of mm. not having a home. Yeah. Do you know, I've just had a huge insight because I think the most obvious thing that my parents and grandparents went through was the partition of India. And on my birth chart, I've got a fear of abandonment. And I think it suddenly, it suddenly landed for me that those two things are connected. I've never, ever thought of that before. Yeah, isn't that fascinating though? Yeah. And, and that's why it can be so strong in us until we understand like what's the root of it. Because only yeah. when I, like from a karmic perspective, once we understand what the old choice was, we can make a new choice. Mm. So that we... Because, you know, karma, karma is choice, intention, and action. So it's like, if I don't really understand, now we don't have to understand everything. I really am very clear on this. Mm. If you have traumas that you don't understand or you don't remember, the brain is protecting you for a reason. <laughs> so yeah. what is, what is presenting for you? You know, if it is a, mm-hmm. a fear of abandonment or for me, you know, it's always like this concern about home. And I, I recognize that, you know, there's a, that's definitely an aspect of my childhood. Absolutely. Mm. But why did my soul incarnate into a situation where home was an issue? Yeah. Because it's been an issue for millennia in my gener, and, or, you know, for hundreds of years in my culture. I was just kind of thinking of doing a recap for people about, you know, do a meditation to find your totem animal, Google the Akashic records and like maybe look into, you know, what, what could have been like in your, your soul scar. But I also just then had this overriding thought, which is you are so amazing that what you do at what you do, that you're on a podcast talking to me about theory, but you've somehow managed to give me an energy session. It's incredible. Oh, thank you. Uh, energy is the greatest healer. 
It's amazing. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that this happened and people will like experience it with me. Um, and, you know, hopefully get insights of their own because it's just a it's just a shift in the way that you think. It's just putting two things together that if you don't know about Akashic Records and you don't know about generational trauma, you just never would. And I know about those things, but I've just never put them together because I've never spoken about them in the same sentence like, like we just have. Um, what I'd love to cover before we finish off, because we've talked about generational, you know, epigenetic inherited trauma. But what about past lives? You know, that's not physical. That's that's the soul. So tell us, does it work in a similar way or how does that manifest? Yeah, so we can take something as simple as I think a lot of people have abandonment wounds, right? And mm -hmm. you may not, a lot of times clients will say to me, I, I, I've not been abandoned in this life, so it doesn't mm -hmm. make sense to me. And I'll always look because, you know, even the loss of a loved one, I've lost a lot of people in my life. You know, mm -hmm. someone, someone dying can feel like an abandonment, a, a parent working yeah. too much, even if it was to take care of you can feel like an abandonment. But mm -hmm. I also look at the past lives because maybe someone in a past life had left you and that left mm -hmm. that hole in your heart. And then you mm -hmm. incarnated in this life with that experience. Mm -hmm. So when I do healing work with people and I do energy psychology and a lot of other, I bring in a lot of tools from the East and the West and I always look at past lives and I'll even use applied kinesiology or, or surrogate muscle testing to say like, is this true? So that I'm getting information from your physical body, not your egoic mind. But that's mm. one of the best ways to find it is like, okay, we have this because I'm only ever interested in what's blocking you this lifetime. <laughs> so, yeah, so if there's, yeah. yeah, so a lot because, you know, a lot of people who are seekers, they want to find everything, you know, and, and we all, I have, I have that in me a little bit too. I'm like, I want to clear it all. <laughs> I want to find everything. <laughs> I so I'm always it. like, just, yeah, yeah. yeah like I'm, I'm going to yeah. clear it all out. So in this lifetime, we just look at what's showing up for you in right now, what's showing up in your, in your relationships with yourself, mm -hmm. with money, with others, with, you know, work, all those things that like, I like to make it really life, real life practical because all this stuff can sound really interesting. But when you understand that it's showing up for you now and that by doing that healing work around it, that it will shift how you feel, that's mm. where the magic happens. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. Do you believe, which is a belief that comes from my culture, that if that basically you have to be reborn until you've you've you know cleared all of that that karmic um baggage I guess that you carry with you so is part of the intention of your work to help people deal with it to the point that which they would achieve what we would call nirvana which means you never have to be born again you become a free soul Yes, I myself am not an enlightened master, so I don't know if I have that power, <laughs> but I definitely okay. want to. I definitely agree with you, and I, I learned that too through the Vedic perspective. As, as long as you're on earth, you have something to learn here. I love that. Yeah. That's just as simple as it is, right? Mm. We've got a karmic, a karmic lesson, something to learn, and karma can get a negative rap, but it's also good things. It's like you might be here this lifetime to learn to love or to forgive or to let go. You know, I know from my Vedic chart, I've got a couple planets in the 12th house, which is, is technically loss um, in, the, in the English translation. But the other word for moksha is enlightenment. So my soul this life wanted to learn how to let go toward the path of enlightenment. And so I've been incredibly challenged this lifetime. And it's yeah. really 
giving me that perspective of like, okay, like life and karma are not trying to punish me, but it's mm-hmm. trying to help me evolve to be the highest person, you know, the highest expression I can in this, in this lifetime. And so that's really yeah. my goal with people is to help them unload everything that is not them, that is past traumas, limiting beliefs, negative things that, that hold them back from ultimately, you know, the, their dharma, which is their truth. Well, that's the mm-hmm. simplest word for dharma, but, you know, living mm-hmm. our purpose, being who we're meant to be. Yeah. I mean, I personally agree that when I understood that if I was going through a difficult time, it wasn't life or the universe or God or whatever trying to punish me. It was an opportunity for me to learn. That's really helpful. Um but kind of at what stage of your life and for what particular reason did do you feel that you went from your very difficult childhood to understanding that, okay, the reason that all these, because if I remember correctly, you'd lost every member of your direct family by a young age. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much into my thirties. Yeah. Both my parents, you know, my parents, my older sister, my grandma. Yeah. I don't really, I have two younger siblings left and that's it. I'm the oldest okay. surviving family. Member. Yes. That, that's it. You're the oldest. Yeah. Surviving family. Yeah. Member. I mean, that's a lot of loss and it must make you question things. You know, I haven't had that much, but it's definitely made me question things. Um, what do you think caused the shift for you of understanding that these things aren't meant to punish me? They're, you know, they're some, an opportunity to learn or, or actualize to my higher self. What, well, I'm maybe not really asking you that personal question. I'm wondering how we can help people to get to that point. Yeah, no, I love that you brought up my personal story because I always love to tell people, like, I'm not saying this from, you know, not having been through a lot of challenge. Because yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I get that, you know, I've seen teachers sit up there and say things and it's like, well, you've had a life pretty that's pretty easy. So, like, you know, I'm saying this from, like, I've been in the trenches yeah. <laughs> and I've had to crawl my way out. And I think through mm. the spiritual path and the spiritual study is what gave me the perspective. Western psychology gave me the understanding and the textual, mm-hmm. you know, the textbook understanding and the how to process the the healing. But I really feel like spirituality gave me the why and helped me yeah, understand yes. why I incarnated to those parents and and how it actually helped me become who I was meant to be. Yeah. So I love that answer for people, which is I think starting on the spiritual path if you haven't already or progressing on the spiritual path and you know of course with the theme of this podcast I love the idea that people would absolutely try to access ancestral wisdom of their own but maybe look into some of these other cultures which is what I'm trying to present to people by you know interviewing the guests that I've chosen for season two so I think that's a beautiful place to conclude unless you have something else a nugget that you'd love to share at the last moment Yeah, I guess I just want to invite every listener to, you know, connect with yourself and your own truth and let go of the things that feel heavy to you and find the things that resonate with you in the ancient wisdom, because there is so much wisdom out there to guide you. But, you know, always listen to your heart with what connects. So if if today, you know, the Vedas call to you, take that first step, just pick up one book, do find one thing that you can connect with. And I promise you that will be the guide to where you need to go. I love that. Um, yeah, I'm thinking my one is going to be, I think my first one is going to be totem animal. And then, the, then there's so many other things, but <laughs> I think that's the one I'm going to do next. Um, Tori, please tell um, our listeners where they can find you, follow your work or and any, you know, like books or programs or 
things that you have on offer at the moment? Yeah. So you can find me at Tori Janae, T-O-R-I-J-E-N-A-E.com or on Instagram at Manifest Soul Success, since I'm always helping people with the soul. And I offer one-to-one energy healing and work. And then I also do a small group, small intimate group programs. So I keep that very unique and bespoke, but we really, you get me intuitive guidance and a lot of just direct help to guide you as a group, as a healing container through letting go and doing a lot of this different, a lot of different work, whatever we call in, whatever tools we need to help people heal. So that I love. Sounds amazing. And you do that in person and online, right? Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles area, but I do some in person. And then I also offer a lot of Zoom. I'm actually quite international. I've got clients from, I see clients from LA to Paris almost every week. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your wisdom and your energy. I I can't tell you how much it's benefited me just by spending this time with you. And, and I'm just so excited to hear back from people after they hear this episode. I think it's going to have a really, really strong and beautiful impact. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Such a fangirl. <laughs> <laughs> Equally. Um, I'll be in LA at some point, so I'd love to meet you. Oh, absolutely. You have to tell me when. Yeah. And when I come to England again, because I came for Mo yes. and Alice's um, to speak at their event. So I will definitely yeah. also see you then. <laughs> definitely. If you have a question or comment for me, please email or send an audio recording of your question to drtara at knox.studio. This has been Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara, a Knox Studios podcast. Mm-hmm.